0: All right, we are in the book of Revelation this morning, Revelation chapter 1, if you would like to turn there with me. And uh, if you need a Bible this morning and maybe got out without yours, we can help you with that. Just raise your hand and we'll share a copy of God's word with you. There's a note page in your bulletin. Uh, If you would grab that note page, that would be a help along the way. And what I'd like to do, church family, is just introduce the passage that's going to occupy our thoughts this morning. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 1, last book of the Bible, verses 9 through 18 today. And allow me to read for us. I'll be reading out of the uh, English Standard Version this morning. And uh, if you'll follow along, here's what we read. Verse 9. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And we'll stop right there. Now, if you were with us last time, church family, you know that we stepped for the first time into a brand new little four part mini series called oh, It's All About. Jesus. That's right. And it really is all about Jesus. What is the Christian life really all about? It's all about Jesus. Yes. And he is the beginning. He is the middle. He is the end of the Christian life. He is its foundation. He is its purpose. He is its ultimate destination. And we say amen to that. It is all about Jesus. And that being true, uh, in this little mini-series, we are searching out just a few of the places in God's Word that uh, few of many that clearly and powerfully remind us that it's all about Jesus. Ultimately, that truth is what unites us this morning. Jesus is what binds us and holds us together as the Bible church family, which is part of the larger church that is God's in the world. No matter how dark, no matter how discouraging or dangerous it might get for us as Christians in this this crazy world that we live in, knowing that it's all about him is what makes and keeps us together. It's what keeps us one. Now last time, if you were able to be with us last Sunday, we went up on a mountain, if you recall, Mark chapter 9. We went up on that mountain with Jesus and with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And we saw Jesus transfigured. We saw him changed for a moment. For just a moment, he allowed his glory to radiate out, to shine out, unfiltered by his humanity. As the Heavenly Father declared in that moment with a loud voice, This is my beloved Son, Listen to him. You remember that? Listen to him. In that moment there on the mountain, the father essentially said, it is all about Jesus. Listen to him. And that's the message we took away last time. Now today, we join up with John again. The same John who was on that mountain last week. For a second, no less glorious encounter with Jesus where the same conclusion is going to be drawn, that it's all about him. In fact, we're going to be given an even more eye-opening revelation of Jesus than we got last week. And we got a pretty good view of Jesus last time. So 1,900 years ago, as the book of Revelation opens, John is an old man the last living disciple of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. John has now more than 80 candles on his birthday cake when we're introduced to him here in this opening chapter. He's an old man living in a difficult and dangerous time as the first century draws to a close. And it is particularly difficult if you happen to be a follower of Jesus. Domitian is the Roman emperor Anyone who refuses to acknowledge him as God feels his wrath. Many, many Christians refusing to do that are arrested. They are sent to Rome to uh, entertain the crowds in the Colosseum. Many will die in the Colosseum. Food for lions. Others, we are told, are wrapped in animal skins and they're thrown in the sea and drowned. Some are covered in tar and placed on stakes and will serve as human candles to light the emperor's gardens at night. All because as Christians, as followers of Jesus, he's the Lord of their life and no one else will ever be that. They're not going to call anyone else God. For them, it really is all about Jesus and they will die for him. Some are imprisoned and some, as in the case of John here, are banished to forsaken places and left there to die. John is banished for his faith to a tiny island off of the coast of modern-day Turkey, an island called Patmos, and here he is to live out his remaining days alone as an enemy of the state. Of course, we know that God has other ideas for John in this moment. What was an exile designed to remove John from having any more influence will actually be the perfect place for the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus to entrust what will come down to you and I as the book of Revelation. God will take John out of circulation so that he can give him the revelation because God's in control, right? Totally in control. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of... Of Jesus, In other words, John is in this isolation, this, this death uh, sentence on this island, and it really will be a time for him to see a new glimpse of his Savior. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit. That is to say that he's not experiencing a vision in this moment, but through some supernatural action of the Holy Spirit, Uh, He is going to enter the realm, a realm outside of and beyond that island setting, and he's going to see Jesus. And it'll be on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day. We read in verse 10, and he says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So on a Sunday, John receives the most unexpected and astounding visitor. Although he's been some 60 years now since he has seen Jesus in the flesh, John knows instantly that it is Jesus. And yet Jesus' appearance is very, very different from what he looked like when he walked the length and breadth of Judea and Galilee with his disciples. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So John sees one who, is, who, who has a human form. And we are barely into the book, and the symbolism just starts to fall out of the verses. There are seven lampstands, we're told, and and verse 20 will actually tell us that those represent seven churches that existed in the late first century in John's day. Earlier, we read all the names of the, the cities and towns that these churches were in. All of them are in present-day Turkey, and these churches are representative of Jesus' church all around the world, the number seven being the number of completeness uh, in Scripture or wholeness or totality, representative of the kinds of churches that can be found anywhere and in any age. Some churches are healthy, some churches are not so much, but They're all captured here in these seven churches. And what's most important is to notice that in verse 13, John sees a human figure, someone standing in the very center of these churches that represent the church in every age. These lampstands, there's one standing in the middle of them. Someone is standing there at the center of the church john clearly sees a man but more than a man in fact he sees a son of man and john's choice of words here is very specific it's very precise because this was the this was the phrase or the name that jesus liked to use for himself when he talked about himself he uses it 81 times in the gospels to refer to himself and so John sees the God-man. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is nothing like those stylized traditional images of Jesus that we see in paintings and portraits, like this one. This is not who John sees on this Sunday. Jesus stands at the center of his church. No surprise there, right, church family, that he would be standing in that place. Jesus is the bridegroom. His church is the bride, that he is at the center is confirmation of what we already know, that it's all about him. And those words aren't used here, but that's what's implied as the takeaway. Everything else that we're going to read is going to declare that same truth. It's all about Jesus. He's clothed, we're told, in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. In other words, Jesus, as John sees him, is dressed in garments that instantly place him into the role of a prophet, a priest, and a king. What we know, of course, from Scripture is that Jesus is all three of those for you and me. He is the revealer of God's truth, so he's in that prophetic role. He is the great high priest of the book of Hebrews who makes the, fun, the, the final once-for-all sacrifice for sin, so he is the priest, and, and like a king with a golden sash across his chest, Jesus is the sovereign ruler of the universe. King of kings and Lord of lords, as Revelation nineteen sixteen will declare. In verse 14, the hair of his head is white, like wool, like snow, John says. And this is the Holy Spirit's way of telling us that Jesus possesses infinite, eternal wisdom as all knowing God. This would be in keeping with Jesus name as the ancient of days. For example, in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. He has not se- there's nothing that he has not seen, nothing that that he does not know about, and this white hair is reflective of that that wisdom, that infinite all knowing wisdom. And that's further reinforced when we read Also in verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Absolutely nothing escapes Jesus' gaze. Perhaps that would remind us of Hebrews 4.13, a verse that you might know. We read these words, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There are no secrets with Jesus, right? No way you're going to pull, pull the wool over his eyes. Everything, everything, every detail of our lives is, a, is like an open book to him. And this is a, a visible expression for John of the omniscience of Jesus. He knows all that could possibly be known. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, says verse 15, well, that's a picture that would take us all the way back into the Old Testament times when a, a conquering king would step on the neck of his defeated enemy on the ground and he would it would be kind of a visual display of victory and conquest. Jesus is being declared by what he's accomplished at the cross as the one and only undisputed victor. He is the conqueror. He conquered Satan. He delivered the fatal blow to Satan at the cross. Remember that? Genesis chapter 3 says that that Satan will bruise Jesus' heel, but Jesus will crush Satan's head. Feet of bronze. His voice was like the roar of many waters. And to John, Jesus' voice sounds like the roar of 10,000 Niagara Falls. The idea being conveyed is that the one who, who is in front of John has unrivaled authority unlimited power. Jesus is omnipotent. If he says it, man, it happens. With a word, he moves galaxies. With a whisper, he moves the heart to embrace him as Savior and Lord. He is, in that way, omnipotent, sovereign God. Nothing too hard, nothing impossible for him. In his right hand, he holds seven stars Verse 16 says. The stars are going to be identified for us. We don't have to guess what they are. Verse 20. Seven messengers to these seven churches. That Jesus is standing in the middle of. Many. And and I would be included in this group. Would understand these stars. To actually be the human leaders. Of these various churches. And they are in Jesus right hand. To say that he alone. Retains sovereign authority over the church. A leader may be. Uh, in a position of influence, whether it's a pastor or an elder team or whatever it is. But Jesus says, I retain the authority and control in my church. It's mine. It's my church. And we say, Amen, may it always be so, right? Never putting our trust in a person, but always in the one who holds all of the church in his hand. Verse 16, From Jesus' mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And of course, this is not a literal sword sticking out of Jesus' mouth. That would just be weird. But the imagery captures the idea of the penetrating, cutting, kind of the decisive judgment of Jesus. When he speaks, his word stands. Do you recall these words out of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any what? Two-edged sword, double-edged sword. It penetrates even in dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It what? Judges. The word of God judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Whatever Jesus says is fixed and it is certain. You will not argue with him with this sword ever. It is the word of God. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Brothers and sisters, this is the majestic glory that radiates from the one whom we saw last week is holy, holy, holy. If you remember that from Isaiah chapter 6, God dwells, Jesus dwells in a holiness that is so pure and brilliant that the angels in heaven, we are told, cover their faces because they cannot look on the glory of Jesus. This is what John sees. The person of Jesus, the Lord of glory, He saw this glory on the mountain in Mark chapter 9 at the transfiguration and it terrified him then. It terrifies him now. For look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. John gets it. I mean, he really does get it. He knows this is all about Jesus he's overcome in this moment and how could he not be overcome in our day we would say he loses it here his knees buckle and he presses himself down into the ground on his in his island prison as as low as he can go that's what he does I fell at his feet as though dead and if we had been there we would have done no better right we'd be in exactly the same place and rightly so. Jesus, the glorious, risen, reigning God-man, comes to John, and it's almost more than his 80-year-old heart can handle. But then immediately there unfolds this, this scene, a, a moment of incredible tenderness. Here's this old man, godly, faithful since he first met Jesus as a teenager, He's exiled to this island for loving Jesus. And Jesus comes to him and he stoops down. Because remember, John's pressed down into the dirt. He stoops down and he puts his hand on him. He touches him. So this is no vision. This is really happening. And if you flip your note page over... John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, what? Don't be afraid. Fear not, John. Now, I don't know how those words fall on your heart, fellow Christian, but to my heart, those are incredibly wonderful words of of refuge and safety and comfort. Tenderly spoken. Fear not, John. Hear the words of shelter and security for anyone who's living in a in a fallen, sin-filled, dangerous world like we live in. Hear these words of Jesus as they're spoken to John, but hear them as if they were spoken to you. For that is in truth how you should understand them. Especially if maybe you're in a season in your life where things are really tough and it just feels like every time you turn around, life is just unraveling a little bit more for you. You need to hear these words from Jesus as if he were saying them to you do not be afraid and then jesus says don't be afraid of me that's really what he means don't be afraid of me john the one thing that you do not need to do is be afraid of me i am not i'm no enemy i'm not going to harm you in fact i'm not against you john i am so very much for you so for you and he says that with his touch and he says that with his words i am so for you jesus words are not very far removed from those of the apostle paul in romans chapter 8 a passage that that many of you would know well listen to these words again one thing shall we say to these things if god is what's the next two words for us if God is for us who can be against us we say amen to that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things who shall bring a charge against God's elect it is God who justifies who is he that condemns what's the answer to that question Nobody can condemn those who are in Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Jesus, right? Who loved us. If God is for me, who can be against me? Would you say that with me? And and say it regarding yourself. If God is for me, Who can be against me? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Yeah. Jesus tenderly puts his hands on John and he says, Do not be afraid, John. Jesus who cannot lie says, I am for you. How many people's lives would be radically changed for the better if they would simply believe this truth? Take your eyes off of yourself. Take your eyes off of your circumstances and put them on Jesus because it is all about Him. And when we get that, there is just something very assuring and safe and settling for the soul. It's all about Jesus. And if all of this that that John has seen were not enough... To confirm to his heart this truth. It's all about Jesus. He then supplies three more reasons. In verses 17 and 18. Verse 17. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am what? I'm I'm the first and the last, he says. In effect, Jesus says, John, I am God. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the A to the Z of all that is, the beginning and the end, the Lord of all creation, the one who made you. John, I'm the Lord of all that is in the past, all that is present, and all that is yet to be. Whatever it is, wherever it is, whatever happens, whenever it happens, man, I'm the boundary that closes it in. On all sides, I am the first and the last. I am God. And you know what? If that is true, if that is true on a cosmic level, which it is, on the macro level, then it's also true on the micro level, isn't it? On the, on the individual personal level where you and I live, this same truth applies. It's true at the level of my life. It's true at the level of your life. The Lord of glory bookends the universe and He bookends our lives. He is at my beginning when I take my first breath. He's at my earthly ending whenever that will be. And He is at every point in between. First and last. I don't need to be afraid. The risen Lord Jesus is my safe place. Who can begin to count the number of those who have loved the Lord Jesus down through the ages who have been comforted and kept safe by remembering that he is first and last and everything else in between? He's big enough. That's what he says. I'm big enough. But in this moment with John on Patmos, Jesus doesn't stop there because in verse 18 he says, I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive for how long? Forevermore. You know, if someone were to come up to you and ask you, what is the one thing that you would want to tell me if you could only tell me one thing and you only get one sentence to do it in? What's the one thing You would want to tell me. Now, I admit, I catch you off guard. You would say, man, give me a few moments to think about that. That's really important. Well, how about a little help? The Apostle Paul had this very opportunity uh, with the Corinthian church. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4... Here is how Paul would answer the question. If you can only have one thing to say to someone, and you only get one sentence to do it in, here's what Paul says I would say. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. One sentence, Paul says this is what I would say. Jesus died, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. Does that sound like a good response? Yeah. Jesus gives essentially the same answer, doesn't he? I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Why are we here today at Idlewild Bible Church, brothers and sisters? Why are we here Why are we here? We're here because Jesus is alive, right? Would you be here if Jesus wasn't alive? You wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. The Bible church wouldn't exist. We are here because Jesus is the living one, yeah? And notice that he says, I am the living one, present tense. Not I was or I will be or I plan to be, I am the one, the only living God. Yes, you are, Jesus. It is all about you. And Jesus elaborates, I died. John, though old in body, is still very sharp in mind. He would have heard Jesus say this, and instantly his memory would have transported him back to that day when uh, all of time and history hinged on this one moment in time. John would remember that standing at the foot of Jesus' cross outside of Jerusalem. He would have remembered the most horrific lament ever voiced. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he took your sin and my sin upon himself. And the Father had to turn his holy eye away. John would have remembered all of that. He would have remembered the finality of Jesus' last words when From the cross, he says, it is finished. And he would have remembered the soldier plunging his spear into Jesus' side, adding insurance that Jesus truly was dead. John remembered a dead Jesus. But Jesus says, I died. It's the only past tense in the entire passage. But look, he says, behold, with your eyes, John, I am what? alive forever and ever. Now how long is that, church? How long is forever? forever? It's forever. Sure, it's forever. You know when a human being says forever and ever, we have to be pretty careful with that. When when one preschooler yells at another preschooler and and is mad at them and says, I'm never going to be your friend ever, ever, ever again. We kind of have to be suspect about whether those words are going to hold up. Why? Well, because ten minutes later, the two are playing together again as if nothing ever happened, right? But when Jesus says, I am alive forever and ever, Well, you can count on that, can't you? We can count on that. Forever with him means forever. A never-ending time. I'm alive. John remembered Jesus dead, but he also remembered running to where Jesus had been buried. On that Sunday morning, three days after the cross, he goes to the grave, we're told in Scripture, and he discovers an empty tomb. He remembers seeing grave clothes, the garments of death, but there is no Jesus. Jesus. That's because Jesus is alive. And before that first Easter Sunday is is done, the very much alive and resurrected Jesus is going to appear to John and the other disciples and turn their sorrow and their fear into great joy because Jesus is alive forever. Now some 60 years later in the loneliness and the isolation of his island prison, Jesus says to John, don't be afraid. I, I am enough. I am for you. And I have the keys to death's gate. I'm the living one. I died. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I am in control, John, of of the last and great enemy in your life death. I defeated it on Easter morning, and I am in control of Hades, the Bible's word for life after this life. Jesus says, I, by virtue of my resurrection, hold the keys. Now, those keys, church family, are in a very real way the keys to our future. If you stop and think about it, they're the keys to our future. Jesus holds our future. And it is his resurrection that makes our future certain and sure. John fourteen nineteen, Jesus says, because I live, what? You shall live also. Because I'm alive, you're alive. And you will be alive forever. I hold the keys. And if we placed our faith and our trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, he in effect says, I will never allow death to take you and hold you prisoner ever. I hold the keys. You can almost see him doing that. I hold the keys. So the real question this morning becomes, does Jesus hold the keys in your life today? Yeah? Yeah, well, there's one over there and one over here. Let me ask that one more time. Does Jesus hold the keys in your life? Yes? Yes. Yes. Amen and amen. And if you can't say yes this morning to that question, then, boy, before you leave today, don't leave without knowing for certain in your heart of hearts that Jesus holds the keys to your life. Give him your life in simple faith. Confess that he died on the cross. He paid your sin debt Rose from the dead, victorious over sin, death, and the grave, and he gives you eternal life. Forever. You know, the book of Revelation is all about the end of the beginning. This is the beginning. And the beginning of the story that has no end. That's the book of Revelation. The exalted, glorified, living Lord Jesus, whom the Holy Spirit has has presented to us here today and allowed us to see so beautifully is standing at the center of his church that he bought with his own blood and he is going to bring all things under his lordship and every knee is going to bow, the scriptures tell us. This Jesus will leave no doubt in any living creature's mind that it is all, truly, all about Yeah. Amen. It is all about Jesus. Let's pray together. And Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for giving us these moments together to be freshly reminded of this glorious truth. And and Father, I would just uh, seek your face in this moment for the one, maybe more than one in our midst here today who has yet to settle the question of who you will be in their life. They, they really aren't sure that you hold the keys to their life, their future, their eternity. I would pray, Father, that you would just lavish your love on that one who might be in our midst who's in such a place. Help us to be a help to such a friend today. And if you are in that place today, do not leave today without, without making an effort to to understand and know just a little bit more of who Jesus is for you. And if we can help you, just seek us out. We'd be glad to be a part of that, part of your journey, part of your story. Lord Jesus, we love you, but we love you only because you loved us first. And and how we thank you that you entrust to us this, this marvelous gift of the gospel and urge us to take it to a world that doesn't know you yet. May we be bold to do that as a church family. And Jesus, we would know from the book of Revelation that you are coming soon. You have made that promise. It could happen today. You would break through the clouds. You would call us to yourself. And oh, what a glorious day. And we're like a bride waiting for you, our groom. You're standing in the midst of your church. We really do want to be ready for you. Our hearts long to see you. And so we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. We don't want to see you with eyes of faith anymore. We want to see you face to face and tell you with, with loud shouts that it really is all about you. Thank you. Thank you. And all God's people said, Amen.